Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, we've been marching through the Old Testament, seeing God's story of salvation. Um, and we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 10 this morning, the, the final paragraph there, which is one of my favorite paragraphs, passages in the Pentateuch. And I'm going to begin reading from verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is within it. Yet the Lord set his heart on your fathers and chose their offspring after them above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that you have seen with your eyes. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Let's pray together. Lord, this Christmas Sunday, tune our hearts to know you, to think of you, to feel our affections warmed towards you, for you to be our praise. Would you do that in our hearts and our minds today and this week as we center ourselves around you? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe you notice that there's this pretty awkward metaphor about circumcision in verse 16. This is not exactly Christmas dinner table conversation that is happening here in this passage. We know that one of Israel's signs, if you were part of God's covenant people in Israel, one of the signs of your membership was circumcision. If you were a male, you were circumcised on the eighth day, and you would have that as an outward sign to say as an Israelite, I know I belong to God. I know I'm in God's people because I am circumcised. And because I abstain from certain foods and because I observe certain, holi certain holidays, I know that I'm in, I know that I'm a part of God's people. But we all know the story of the Bible and we all know the story of our hearts that outward signs can backfire. Signs of membership are not the substance of membership. You can have all the external signs you want, but if nothing is happening in our hearts internally, then nothing is happening with respect to faith. This happens all the time in the church. We have biblical signs of membership, and then we have signs of membership that we invent out of thin air, but all of them we kind of use in our lives to size each other up and say, who's in and who's out, who belongs here and who doesn't belong here? Baptism or church attendance, or do I own a Bible, or do I not use profanity, or do I wear a one-piece bathing suit, 
Or do I retweet pastel-bordered scripture passages? Or do I observe Christmas and Easter? I I can build up this like outward collage of signs that I belong that this is for me. Some of those are biblical. Some of those are made up. But the signs are not the substance. I can have signs of belonging and not truly be born again. And so God, please, in verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. Praise God, he is not content with outward signs alone. Praise God, he doesn't show up on a a Christmas Sunday and take attendance and say, wonderful, these people are here, so these people are in. He's after so much more than that, our very hearts and our souls. So this morning, we're going to see in our passage what God wants, what God offers, and then what God delivers. Let's talk about what God actually wants. It's there in verse 12 for us to see clearly. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What does God want? That's essentially asking, what does the Lord your God want in his relationship with you? All of us in this room, doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter our background, we're in some journey, spiritual journey of determining who God is and where we fit in his plan and where he fits in our plan. All of us are on that journey. And wouldn't it help to know first from God what he's actually looking for from us? What does he want from us? Do people still use today the acronym DTR? Is that like still a, a, a hip acronym that people use? Some of you are nodding yes. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. A DTR is defining the relationship, okay? So that's that dreaded moment in every man's life who's being ambiguous with a girl and she calls him to the mat and says, what are your intentions? What are you, what are you doing here? You know, that's a DTR. And it usually surprises you and brings panic to your life, Okay. So my wife drew me into a DTR at the worst of moments. We had gone up to see my family. We weren't dating at the time. Uh, I was being very ambiguous. She was in my childhood home. I showed her some baby pictures. I just thought that was casual conversation. (laughs) We jump in the car for like a 10-hour ride back to Columbia And I say something like, hey, I've loved hanging out with you this weekend. I want to keep hanging out with you. And she said, you know, I really got to know what you think about me and where you think this thing is going. Man, you want to see a man stutter, sweat, panic, put him in a tight car with a 10-hour ride in front of him and ask him his intentions. I said what any Christian man does when he's up against a wall. I said, let's pray about it. Let's... Let's see the incoming freshman and let's pray and, let, you know, we'll go from there. So it was okay. We got out of that one. Well, if you, <laughs> Julie's nodding. I literally said that. Um, Deuteronomy 10, if you could say it this way, is God's DTR. He's saying, all right, we're going to define the relationship here. We're going to talk about what's happening. I have redeemed you. 
I've brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've given you my law. I've given you my presence. I've given you the gift of atonement. I am here with you and for you. Let's define our relationship. And the words that come tumbling out of God's description are fear and love and serving him with our heart and soul. Whatever this relationship is going to be between us and God, it's going to be a matter of our heart and soul. That's going to be the battleground. That's where the action happens. It's going to be something that's going to change us from the inside outward. God wants us to fear him. And by that, he doesn't mean like a servile fear of of being worried how he thinks about us or what he's going to do to us, but it's a familial fear. It's the way that a child ought to fear a father figure, to respect him and to be eager to please him. That's the fear that God wants us to have for him. He says to love him, to see God as lovely and lovable. Did you know that that's what God wants in his relationship to you, for you to know that he is near and accessible, that he is personal to you and affectionate with you. That's what he wants. And finally, to serve him. And we don't mean begrudgingly, we don't mean out of strictly a sense of duty, but actually to serve him with our hearts and our very souls. That's what God wants in our relationship with him. God could have settled for a relationship with humanity that was purely transactional. It was purely based on duty. It was all about what things we did for him and accomplished for him. But praise God, he doesn't want to settle for that kind of relationship. So let me give you a pop quiz. Let me put two people in front of you and you tell me who is pursuing the relationship that God wants. You've got person A, and this person has done everything right this Christmas season. I mean, they nailed the Advent devotionals with their kids. They did it every single night. They hung stuff on the Joshua tree. They didn't miss a single beat with their kids. They served their family. They opened up their home to family members they don't even like. They came over, fellowshiped with them. They sent out their Christmas cards in November. Like that was the first thing on your fridge. This guy did it all, but he was restless, and he was anxious, and he wondered why no one was giving him the credit he was due for the things that he was doing. He was constantly comparing himself with other people. He was ashamed at where he fell short, and he was proud of where he had advanced, and his heart was a mess. And then you have person B, and this man didn't do any of those things. He would miss a week of Advent devotions and they'd have to shove like a bunch of stuff on the Joshua tree all at once. And they missed their Christmas card and it's coming out after Christmas and it says Happy New Year. And he struggled to welcome people in his home and he had to apologize and confess and repent to God at the things that he struggled with in his heart. But all the while, he felt God's presence and he was affectionate towards God. Which person honored God in their relationship. Now, if you're like me, I think you're thinking, this is a trick question, and the answer is person C. Like, if we could take the duty from person A, and we could take the delight from person B, and we could put that together, that's what God wants. In every moment, 
doing what he asks and doing it with a happy and a joyful heart. That would be the ideal person, and it is, but it's not you. It's the person of Christ himself, and you're going to meet him in a minute. God is not after our busyness in his kingdom in any way that jeopardizes respectful fear, heartfelt love, soulful service to him. That's what he wants. That's what he desires in our relationship. Have you ever been invited to someone's house and felt like they were more worried about hosting you than they were about actually being with you? right? You've experienced this. You've gone to somebody's house and man, your drink was filled the moment it was half empty and dinner was served at the right time and nothing was burnt and dessert was served. You didn't have to lift a finger to clean. Everything went like clockwork. You got out of there at 8.30. I mean, it was punctual. It was tight. And by the end of the evening, you figured, I had a great meal, but I don't feel like we had a single real conversation with the folks that had us over. You know, our relationship with God can be like that, right? That we can be so eager to do what we think he thinks we should be doing in any moment that we're racing around without actually being with him, loving him, enjoying him. And the right things done in the wrong way will sap our souls. We're just not designed for that. We're not designed for an outward show that has no inward appeal. That's not how we're made. That's not how our hearts function. And it will always disappoint us. Which is why God says in verse 13 that the things we do and feel towards God are for our good. This is for our good to feel this way about God. He's not distracted by the flurry of Christmas. We might be distracted by that. He's not. He is patiently, persistently, doggedly after us, heart and soul. And that's good news. That's what God wants. What does God offer? The answer is, in short, God is offering his very self. In these verses, God lays out at least five reasons to love him. He says that he creates heaven and earth. He says that he first loved us and chose us. He's the Lord of lords. He's just and merciful. Number five, he's proved himself again and again. All of this is here in our passage, all the ways that God has proved that he is lovable. But on this Christmas Sunday, I want to see Jesus and his incarnation in every one of these reasons. You know, as an aside, remember that when Jesus was born and grew up and he was ready to start his ministry, that he fasted for 40 days and then the devil met with him and sorely tempted him to abandon his Christmas mission. Do something else, Jesus. Do anything but this. Find another way to serve God. And in the end, Jesus picked up the book of Deuteronomy and hit the devil over the head with it. These were the chapters that Jesus was reading before he started his earthly ministry. Jesus himself read Deuteronomy, studied Deuteronomy, memorized Deuteronomy, and used it in a pinch to orient himself around God and God alone. So friend, 
If you find yourself drowning in distraction in Christmas without Christ, whether that's from materialism or family discord or loneliness or poverty, Deuteronomy is for you. We're reading Jesus' Bible on the eve of Jesus' arrival for the splendor of Jesus' name. All of these things are true of Jesus, and he knew that when he read this very passage. God creates, and Jesus creates. That's how he's introduced to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Colossians 1, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. Don't let mangers and silent nights fool you. Jesus made and holds the universe. Number two, God chooses us and Jesus chooses us and loves us. John 15, 16 says that Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit. God is Lord of Lords and Jesus is Lord of Lords. You know, when the wise men came to Jerusalem and met with Herod, they said, we saw the star and we're looking for the one who is the king of the Jews, king of the Jews. And then at the end of Jesus' life, Pilate, when he hangs him on a cross, puts a plaque over him that says, Jesus, King of the Jews. And both of those people were right, but both of those were woefully narrow because Revelation 19 says that when Jesus returns, he'll have written on his robe, King of King and Lord of Lords. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. Therefore, Jesus became fatherless, the son of a widow and a sojourner in Egypt. And then Jesus spent most of his ministry outside of the circles of power, ministering to the least of these among us. Finally, God proved himself to Israel time and time again, and so has Christ himself proved himself to us time again and again in his incarnation, his virgin birth, his childhood, all to claim us for himself. What does God want from us? He wants a true, vibrant, affectionate, heartfelt, soulful relationship. That's what he's after. What does God offer to us? It's himself. His glorious, creating, incarnating, choosing, saving, delivering, proving self. That's what he gives to us. And what does God deliver to us on this Christmas Sunday? It's this stunning little four-word banner over Christmas in verse 21a. He is your praise. He is your praise. This is what Jesus wins at Christmas. Not just outward signs of membership, not just cultural Christianity, but a life that is bent back to him in worship. If he has done this, if Jesus has come for us and we have responded to him, we've repented of our sins, we've trusted in him alone for our salvation, he makes us into worshipers and he becomes our praise. 
I've read a bunch of different definitions of what a Christian is. There are some wonderful ones out there, but most recently I read a man named Sam Storms riffing off the Apostle Peter who said, a Christian is someone who has no place else to go. That's beautiful. The name of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus is never far from the lips of a believer. Whatever we do this week, whether we eat or drink, whether we wrap presents or we burn a turkey, whether we make small talk with aunts and uncles we don't know very well or miss friends who are far from us, whatever we do, however we observe Christmas, this is the distinguishing mark of a true believer. Jesus is our praise. Let's pray together. Jesus, this Christmas you have proved yourself praiseworthy, worthy of our praise, worthy of our delight, our fear, our love, our affection, our service to you. You are worthy. Make yourself our praise. Warm our hearts to you wherever we are this Christmas season. Wherever you have us and whatever our lot is, would your name be on our lips and would we praise you? We ask in your powerful name, amen.